Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a discussion of one of Grattan's reports. Welcome to the Grattan podcast channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing all things higher education. Well, perhaps not all things, but in particular, the choices young people make about their post-school education. It's one of the biggest choices we make in our lives. Should I go to uni? Should I do voc ed, vocational education? Should I take my chances and head straight for the jobs market? It's a choice that involves our parents, our teachers, our wallets, our passions, our dreams, our aspirations. And to help us out, I'm joined today by the best in the business, Gretton's Higher Education Program Director, Andrew Norton. Andrew, welcome to you. Thanks, Paul. Andrew, you've just produced a fascinating new report on the choice between higher education and vocational education. What prompted you to write this report? So the background to this report was that really over the last 20 years, but particularly over the last 10 years, there's been an increasing number of students with lower ATARs who've been going to university. And there's been widespread public concern that maybe these students really aren't getting from university what they need to get, which is a pathway to a good job and career, and that possibly there would be better options for them in vocational education. So if that prompted you, and now you've done the work, what broadly have you discovered? Well, broadly, it's actually a mixed finding. So for young men, Often we believe that the lower eight are young men who've got interests in business or in construction or in engineering probably could do a vocational qualification that would lead to more employment and a higher income and certainly some uh, degrees like science or arch, which are common choices for them now. Am I right that the report really homes in on the students for whom this choice is quite real? That is not the students who get a really high ATAR, they almost all go to uni, and not the students with uh, quite low ATAR, they've often got very few choices, or at least regarding post-school education. Am I right, Andrew, your report focuses, if you like, on the middle ground? So there's no clear cut-off, but generally we're looking at people with ATARs between 50 and 70. There are some with who go to uni with ATARs below that, but as you said, they're a fairly small group. And if you look at the very high sort of 80-plus ATARs, for a very long time, almost everyone has gone to university, and we don't think many of them should be or be interested in vocational education. Is the story as simple as saying that the higher your ATAR, the better your prospects? It's always complex. You know, there are people who get high ATARs who end up doing quite badly uh, in their future careers, and there are people with low ATARs who end up blitzing it. And part of the reason for that is in the labour market, there's a much wider range of skills and attributes that are awarded than just academic ability. But on average... Uh, we find that particularly in higher education, people with higher ATARs are finding professional jobs more easily and earning more money. So again, is it as simple as saying that if you get a high ATAR, you should go to uni, but if you get a low ATAR, you should look at vocational education? I think that's broadly true, but I'll qualify it by saying that you know people pursue their interests in life and If you are, for example, passionately interested in the humanities or science, the reality is that vocational education doesn't really cater 
for those interests. You need to go to university, but you need also to be aware that when you finish your degree, you will enter a fairly tough labour market. Because essentially what you're doing is there are not that many jobs which will only take humanities or science graduates, and therefore you're competing for jobs which usually require a degree but no particular degree. And because competition for those jobs is quite intense, so it's not just the science humanities grads who can do that, someone with a degree in any field can do those jobs, Mm -hmm. what we find is that they have lower rates of professional employment and that flows through into lower expected earnings. Now, one of the fascinating aspects I found in the report is the the differences that you identify between men and women when it comes to post-school education and indeed life prospects. So you've touched on that, but just tell us a bit more about the the gender divide, if there is such a thing. Yes, as I said, often for young men, there will be better vocational options. Uh, We are much less persuaded that that is true for young women. So one of the reasons for that is that at least one or the engineering construction fields that do well for men Uh, Firstly, not many women are interested in these fields, so student enrolments in both higher and vocational education, these fields are fairly low for women. And the other thing is, particularly for vocational education, even if they do get one of these qualifications, often they find it hard to break into the boys' club of the construction industry and other related industries. These are inflexible workplaces that don't particularly accommodate part-time work or maternity leave, and as a result, they often end up if they've got this vocational qualification, working in lower skilled jobs. So they simply don't get the financial advantages that men with the same qualification end up getting. But if they go into higher education, particularly into courses like nursing and teaching, which are popular with low ATO women, with some controversy around teaching, they have very high rates of professional employment. And even though they're not going to be rich being a teacher or a nurse, they will get good, stable, reliable, safe income, which is likely better than any of their realistic alternatives. Some of what you just said, Andrew, suggests to me that sexism remains a problem in Australian workplaces. Would I be right? Look, I think there is evidence that particularly in sort of engineering construction fields that does exist. I guess there are sort of there are gender issues on the other side as well. There aren't that many guys doing teaching or nursing, even though that in theory would be a good option for some of them if they were interested in doing it. And I don't think outright sexism is necessarily a big issue in those fields, but when a field tends to be completely dominated by one gender, it's often a big move for the, the opposite sex person to go into that industry. So is it the case, however, that uh, men with lower ATARs have more options perhaps than women with lower ATARs? I've got more options in the on the vocational side, but arguably they've got fewer options on the higher ed side because they're less willing to do nursing and teaching. Right. And tell us a bit more about the differences, not just between sectors, but between courses. You've also found considerable difference with regard to one's life prospects, depending on the course one takes. And I think it'd be true to say that, you know, as we've said in higher education many times, that the course you do is probably the single most important choice you make if you're concerned about your future mm. prospects. And certainly past research showed that 
you know, you're better off doing an engineering course at the least prestigious university than an arts course at the most prestigious university because of these very strong uh, course relationships. And that is true in vocational education as well. So for example, you know, uh, childcare and sort of allied health type uh, courses are popular for women in vocational education, mm -hmm. which we mention in the report, but don't really recommend at this point because their earnings aren't particularly good. So high chance of getting a job, but low chance of having a, a high income. But even an engineering course at a, at a less prestigious campus would not be something you'd recommend to me if I have my heart set on uh, arts or one of the other broader courses? No, I think the reality is if you don't have an interest in a field, trying to maintain the motivation for three or four years of study and then mm. potentially 30 or 40 years of work uh, will be extremely difficult. Uh, probably won't end well. You'll probably not complete the course and if you do, uh, you probably won't stay in the career. So I wouldn't recommend it. Which brings me to uh, another point touched on in the report, which is the quality of career advice available and given in Australian schools. You've got quite a bit to say about that. So the evidence suggests that career advice is very patchy. Some schools do a reasonable job, but others do a very cursory job, hand out a few leaflets, have a few classes on it, but not really enough to give people good advice. And I think certainly not at the personalised level that we think is necessary, particularly for these lower ATAR students. So you need to be able to say, well, while it's true that on average, for example, bachelor degree graduates earn more than people would say a vocational diploma, that's not necessarily the case for a lower ATAR student, that they're likely to be down the bottom end of the bachelor degree income range whereas they're likely to be in the upper half of the vocational diploma range. And so for them personally, uh, the vocational diploma is probably a better choice. And in that regard, what sort of things are you recommending uh, should change to improve the quality of advice that comes to kids, young people at this crucial time in their life? Well, I think one thing which the government is already doing, setting up a National Careers Institute, uh, and I think that's probably a good idea. And partly I think this is to try and simplify the information for the people advising the students. <laughs> you know, often in schools it's done by a teacher who's got other responsibilities. They really need to be able to condense down fairly quickly all this complex information, which is actually already out there often, <laughs> um, into, into a form that they can pass on to their students. But we found, or we're just quoting some other research, like this really fundamental confusion that even when students do know roughly where they want to be in 10 years, many of them are doing or plan to do education, which is not well matched with their aspirations. So you know, even relatively simple things about, you know, which sector vocational higher education prepares you for which careers could be useful. So, Andrew, sum up for me, is, is Australia's post-school education system working well in the fundamental goal of, of steering young people towards the right courses and careers for them? I would say it's doing a middling job. One of its strengths is even though the advice is often not very good at school level, it does give you a fair opportunity to change your mind 
afterwards and to go back and do another course. And particularly in vocational education, many people end up doing multiple courses. So it is fairly adaptable in that regard. Well, both of them can be fairly expensive. So university has fairly flat prices that most students will pay fixed student contributions. Uh, in vocational education, because you've got this mix of Commonwealth and state funding and the private sector is much bigger than it is in, in higher education, you can get quite wide differences in fees for the same course. Uh, the loan system is not very good in vocational education. So even though the vocational student may be charged less in dollar terms than the higher education student, they might have to pay that money up front. And if they don't have a loan, they may decide that even though it's only a few thousand dollars, uh, they won't be able to afford it. Okay, Andrew. So I want you to do this. I want you to imagine that I'm a young person. Shouldn't be that hard to do, surely. Uh, I'm coming to the end of year 12 and I'm thinking about what to do next with my study, with my life. What sort of things should I be thinking about? What sort of advice, Dr Norton, would you give me? So I would start by asking you about which jobs you were interested in. Uh, I would then give some context about prospects for those jobs. So the real young Paul Austin went into journalism. I would probably say that's a a choice you should think carefully about uh, these days. No comment. no comment. Then I would get from that your likely range of interests and try and work out, given where you're at, someone who probably likes writing and things like that, what are the other occupations that uh, might interest you that would be lower risk than possibly the first idea you had? Thank you very much, Andrew. Now, we're almost done, but... I can't and indeed won't let you go without mentioning that you've announced, Andrew, that, that you are leaving Grattan Institute after an extraordinary eight plus years, I think, as head of our higher education program. So first of all, congratulations on all that you've achieved here. But secondly, can I ask you to reflect briefly on those eight years? What, what would you say Australia is doing right when it comes to higher education? Probably the, the biggest idea we've had in Australian higher ed policy and the one that has been most copied uh, in other countries has been income contingent loans, what we call HELP or HEX here in Australia, where people can borrow uh, the cost of their tuition, sometimes uh, cost of their income support as well, and repay that later on when their income is higher. Most copied but quite controversial. Is it a good policy? I think it is. Obviously, you only need it if there are fees being charged. Uh, but my analysis of higher ed systems around the world is that generally they fit in with a much broader tax and welfare system. And so because Australia and the UK and the US and New Zealand, countries that have also had income to loans, because they have sort of by OECD standards sort of low to mid-range taxation levels, they can't afford the huge welfare state that offers free education and the graduates are left with enough post-tax income that they can probably afford to pay these fees. So I think in the Australian context, fees do make sense. The great strength of income contingent loans is that it avoids the problems of mortgage-style loans, such mm -hmm. as in the United States mm -hmm. where you've got 10 or 12 years where you have to repay in fixed monthly amounts. 
And what we see there is that you get high rates of default because, you know, unsurprisingly, people you know, aren't always able to find the job. Other things happen in their life. And so what we've got here is a system that basically, like other aspects of our welfare system, protects people uh, from life's adversities while still ensuring that we can raise this extra money to have this high participation, higher education system. And does it succeed in in improving access? That is, is a poor Australian kid from the bush able to go to university or vocational education just as a prosperous young kid from the city might be able to? Uh, Well, we still do observe fairly substantial differences by social background and regional versus city, which is observed, uh, I think, in all all countries around the world. I think in the Australian context, the big thing that help does means that there are far more student places than there would be otherwise. What happens in free systems, even in relatively big welfare states, there's still a finite amount of money available. And so what you see in free systems is typically they try and save money by restricting the number of student places. Here we save money by spending slightly less per student and that enables us to keep the, the participation rate fairly high. In my view is there are successful higher ed systems around the world with a very wide variety of different funding bases and what really matters is the congruence with the broader tax and welfare system rather than saying that one is better and can be transplanted to any country in the world. And what about the other side of the coin? What are, what are we doing wrong? What sort of things keep you awake at night with regard to higher education policy in Australia? Well, I guess my key disappointment of my time at Grattan has really been the end of the demand-driven funding system. So for a number of years, uh, we replaced an old system where unis basically got fixed amounts of money per year with this demand-driven system where essentially they were paid according to how many students they took. And what that meant was that they could offer the courses students actually wanted to do and the universities that were popular could grow much more quickly than those that were less popular. Uh, This also powered a huge increase in participation rates from about 30% to about 40% over a decade. So it was quite a transformative policy. Now, I'm the first to admit that there were problems and this report is about one of those, which is you know that the rise of the low ATAR students and whether making it easier to get in also makes it easier to incur debt for no good reason. And so of course we always do need to find ways of you know, minimising the negative effects of a policy. But my view is that the people who would want to end demand-driven funding or keep it ended due to the low ATAR students are, you know, throwing the proverbial baby out with the bathwater, that it's a a good system that should be refined at the margins rather than replaced with a system that's much less flexible. Yeah, but let me ask you a fundamental question. Demand-driven funding sounds to me like an open cheque. Is it something that we can afford? Look, my view is that it is affordable, particularly with the kind of loan system got where students you know, do incur a fair amount of the, the cost. And these particularly in higher education, I think it's self-regulating to an extent that you know, even though we've seen this rise of low ATAR students, uh, most people low ATARs never apply for university, <laughs> that there's still a basic self-correction. And we've seen demand sort of peter out over the last few years of pe- as people have realised that the system has reached the point where 
additional students probably aren't going to benefit. Okay, so the demand-driven system has been uh, abandoned or at least uh, put on hold in recent times. You're disappointed by that. Why did it happen and can we or should we be confident that it will return? I think it happened partly because uh, Labor, when it came to power in 2007, uh, people may recall that Kevin Rudd had planned or promised an education revolution, uh, but their actual higher ed policies were sort of small tinkering kinds of policies, so they needed something pretty big. They also wanted to increase participation uh, in higher education. So there was going to be some expansion regardless uh, of of the detail of the funding system. In the end, I think looking at the submissions to the Bradley Review, which led to the demand-driven funding system, was that it was really only people wanting demand-driven funding. It thought about basic questions of if you're going to expand the system, how do you decide which university is going to get them? How do you decide which course courses should get them? And so the huge danger was that you deliver all these places to universities that can't fill them or courses for which there is insufficient demand, and you end up with huge waste in the system. And so I think demand-driven funding sort of filled this vacuum. This was a way of making all these choices. No one could think of a good way for the bureaucracy to do it. Whether it all come back, I think there's significant nervousness that particularly in five or six years' time when the sort of the Costello baby boom starts arriving at university, the costs could go up again. But nevertheless, my view is that there'll be political pressure to find student places for this cohort regardless. And so what we're arguing about is, you know, what is the best way of accommodating this demand, uh, not whether we should basically radically reduce your chance of going to university. Okay, last question, Andrew, and I know you don't particularly like talking about yourself. Can I ask you this? What do you regard as your biggest achievement or contribution over your time at Grattan in this role as Higher Education Program Director? Look, I think there's a few things in hindsight that are probably important. Uh, One was that even though demand-driven funding did eventually end at the end of 2017, I would say a report that I did in 2014 and subsequent activities stalled that happening because there was, even by 2013, there was substantial pressure to end the demand-driven system. And I think we've done a lot to increase understanding of HELP, the Income Contingent Loan Program, and where its weaknesses are and where its costs could be reduced. Only some of those have found their way to the statute books as uh, unfinished business, but I think we've really increased understanding and slightly improved policy in this area. Well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much for your expertise and your advice today and over a, a really influential career at Grattan Institute. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you would like to read the report we've been talking about today, or indeed any of Andrew's reports and articles over the eight years, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter, at GrattanInst, or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please... Help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening.